Sparks. Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's podcast series attempting to answer that eternal question, what draws us all to this extraordinary game? My name's Rod Murray and I'm your tour guide for these explorations into the minds of those for whom golf is more, so much more, than just a game. On episode 19, we're going to meet one of Australian golf's deepest thinkers. Bryden McPherson will be a name familiar to a few of you, though it would be fair to say that even in golf circles, he's far from a high-profile figure. That, however, doesn't mean he's not interesting. In fact, Bryden might be one of Australia's most interesting players. We'll meet the 2011 British Amateur Champion in just a moment, but first I need to take care of some admin, starting with a special welcome for any first-time listeners. I hope you enjoy what you hear today, and I hope that you come back often to hear more. The podcast is available on all the major distribution platforms, so whether you prefer Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, we've got you covered. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. It's free and it downloads in the background whenever we release a new show without you having to do a thing. If it is your first time here, you might enjoy having a look through the back catalogue from Richard Sattler and Mike Clayton to Sue Worcester and Meg McLaren. There's a host of great discussion and some real nuggets of wisdom to be found in the archives. If you hear something you particularly like, or even if you hear something you don't, feel free to reach out and let us know. You'll find me on Twitter at at Rod underscore Mori. That's capital R-O-D underscore capital M for Mary, O-R-R-I. My DMs are open, so anyone can send a message, and I do make a genuine effort to respond to them all. The show has its own handle at at ThingGolf. That's capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. Or you can seek out the magazine on Facebook, or if you're really old school, send us an email to golf at golfaustralia.com.au. Now on to today's episode, and when I first dreamed up the idea for The Thing About Golf, one of the names at the forefront of my mind was that of Victoria's Bryden McPherson. I'd come across Bryden a couple of times in the course of my work, and every time I talked to him, I walked away with my mind whirring. Bryden is a good player. Clearly, you don't win the British Amateur and three times as a pro through luck. But more than that, he's an intriguing thinker, cut from a very different cloth to most golf pros that I've encountered. As an example, the first time I interviewed him on a podcast some years ago, he volunteered the story of the day he shot 90 at the Open. I didn't ask him to retell the tale on this show because it's been covered plenty of times before. But the fact that it happened and that he didn't bristle at the mention of it is just one of the things that sets Bryden apart. In this lengthy chat, you'll hear him talk about lots of stuff, both golf and non-golf related, and my hope, as it always is, is that you come away from the interview knowing something that you didn't know before. At the very worst, I hope you find the chat entertaining. And if the golf swings your thing, make sure to stick around for the last 15 minutes or so, because I can assure you, it is well worth it. Well, Bryden, I guess, as you know, the podcast is called The Thing About Golf. So that's our jumping off point. Off point. What's the thing about golf for Bryden McPherson? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the game has uh, got a really sort of deep meaning and it has this kind of parallel to everyday life, I think, that it seems to seems to leverage up every everything we learn in life. Like, you know, the things that maybe take us a year to learn in life, we tend to learn in an afternoon on the golf course as well if we pay attention. I think that's a really cool thing about the sport. It seems to make 
you know, you know life tests your patience. Uh, golf does it on a 10 time scale. And uh, it, <laughs> it seems to everything that we have to deal with um, in our lives seems to be leveraged up when you're on a golf course. And I think that's a cool challenge. Yeah. That might be the deepest answer I've had yet to that question. <laughs> Most of the golf pros I've interviewed, they've sort of sat back and said, oh, it's my life, which is a short way, I guess, of almost saying what you've just said there. Was that the appeal of it for you right from the start? We're going to come to it later, but I know that you're a, yeah. a thinker, probably to your own detriment sometimes in sometimes. golf. I'm not sure yeah, that it's a great sure. thing yeah, yeah. for a golfer. But was that one of the things that appealed to you early on? And how did you get your start in the game? So I started uh, when I was young. Both of my granddads played golf. So my mum's dad was a late-in-life avid social golfer. And my dad's dad was a very good player back in the day. So the, the 50s and 60s was kind of his heyday. Um, he played number one for Woodlands, won their club championships seven or eight times, and uh, played number one on their pennant team. So he played against, you know, your Doug Backleys, um, was really good friends with Doug Backley, actually. They were really close mates. And, uh, you know, Peter Thompson was a little bit younger, but not a lot younger. Uh, and that whole era of that sort of golden time in uh, Victorian golf. So he was part of that. Um, I didn't really know that when I was younger. Uh, I haven't really grown to appreciate it until now. So I sort mm-hmm. of got a little bit of a bug when I was maybe 10 or 11. I'd play with my pop in New Zealand when I went over to see him. Uh, and my parents joined me up at Devil Bend Golf Club when I was 11. And uh, I think once I started playing and got sort of encaptured by the constant challenge of the game, which I think is what got me in early, was like a it's a, a, a endless pursuit of semi-perfection. Uh-huh. And I think that's what kind of hooked me in. As soon as I hit my first solid shot, that was it for me. Uh-huh. It's funny, isn't it? That regardless of how deep or shallow you end up being involved in the game, it's the same starting point for everyone, I think. That first ball that comes out the middle of the club face, there's something about that which is addictive, unlike Absolutely. anything else I've ever encountered. Well, it's quite a surreal thing. Uh, you know, even if you are 10 or 11 years old, but even if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, and you're still beginning, to move a small ball, I think the physics and things involved of moving that thing 150 yards with this what seems like perfectly controlled ball flight Mm -hmm. is just a very amazing thing. Not many other sports have that kind of connection to, you know, the physics of of our world. And so I think that's a really cool thing that you can see, man, I made that happen. Uh And it has kind of a deep connection. And then there's the feeling in the hands of, actually hitting the ball out of the middle, which is something very, very cool, I think. Yeah. Very we'll come to some of the, the technology stuff later, because there's some interesting fundamental and legitimate questions for the game to ask. Interesting you mentioned Doug Backley. I didn't realise. There's a quite neat line there. You, of course, won the 2011 British Amateur. I don't know what year he won it, but I know it was in the 50s. But Doug Backley was a British Amateur champion too, wasn't he? He was. Uh, you know, I used to know this off the top of my head. I want to say it was 1956. Just go grab the trophy and have a look. It'll yeah. all be on there. Your name there, and you can go back and find it. I, I unfortunately I cannot afford my replica just yet, but it is on the it's on the wait list in my Amazon cart. Um, but yeah, that was a very cool thing uh, for my granddad um, to have that connection, knowing you know basically his best mate was the last Australian yeah. uh, Australian born because Jin Jong did win. Yep. 
um, the year before as an Australian resident. But as uh, someone who grew up in Melbourne, um, I think that's a uh, it, it's a very cool thing to have that kind of connection. Yeah. Um, and it's still something that, especially for a while there, I sort of ran away from as I prefer to have something larger to my name by this point in my life. But you know, more recently, I've been coming back to it as uh, it is a very cool thing to have on on, mm. on your CV. I'm very proud Way of cool. It. Just a quick diversion here. Jinjong, is that the best nickname in all sport? They call him the doorbell. The doorbell. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's one of the greatest things of all. And Did the you meet- thing about it is that he laughs about it too. <laughs> he's a terrific young bloke, isn't he? Fantastic. It's a shame his, his game has not been what it was in his early days of late, but terrific young bloke and a good player and a great sense of humour. As you say, did you get to meet Backley? Never got to meet him. No, I really wish that I had. Of I really, yeah. I, it's, it's a part of me that wishes I could go back to that era and just be a fly, not on the wall, but on the golf course, maybe on that hut on the first tee at Vic and some of the pennant matches. <laughs> some of the conversations that might have taken place yeah, on that first absolutely. tee. Particularly when it was the 19th hole, there might have been some interesting yes, conversations yes. happening there yeah. as well. What was your path through golf development then? Because lots of people take up golf, lots of people like me, we fall in love with the sweet hit and all the rest of it. For most of us, we don't develop much beyond that. We stay hopeless for most of our lives. You've gone beyond that well and truly. What was that path like, that development? So I started off, you know, Devil Bend Golf Club uh, as an, just before I was turned 12, I started to play, uh, you know, the Saturday competitions. Saturdays turned into Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, I started getting lessons from the head pro at the time who was Shane Johnson. Um, last that I heard, he was at Safety Beach. Last time I saw him, he's at Safety Beach now. Just an absolute ripper bloke, absolute. Uh, and he's a dead ringer for Stuart Appleby as well as I was, oh, right. when I was growing up. And um, having got to know Stuart a little bit, uh, you know, it's it's still very true. Shane's just awesome guy. And then I moved on to the the tra- who was the trainee at the time, Christian Kiley. Uh, and then I moved on um, after I started playing Saturdays, Sundays, and you know. Mondays after school, Wednesdays after school, <laughs> Tuesdays, Tuesdays after school, um, cursing daylight savings because I could only get 45 minutes of practice in, things like that. Uh, I was well and truly hooked into the game and I started playing pennant for Devil Bend in the junior team, um, you know, when it was handicap match play and things like that. Eventually built my way up to playing in the men's team. Uh, you know, we won a flag, which was a big deal. We hadn't won a flag for a long time. Then I made. I won the district championships when I was. I think I was fifteen or fourteen um, for Peninsula District. That kind of really. Now I look back on it, it was a bit of a turning point because it was my first decent size event, men's event that I had won. Um, it was at Devil Bend, and uh, I think I won by one or two. I started playing for the district, and then once I started playing for the district, then I started getting into the state team, um, things like that, the junior state team development. Uh, level and then I made it into the state team when I was uh, 16 Um, and then after playing my first year over in Perth uh, under the stewardship of David Capaldo um, I got my first taste for traveling for playing golf and that was just awesome for me and uh, after the after that I started entering some of the amateur tournaments uh, some of the junior tournaments, the Ivo Wittens, uh, and made it into the men's state team uh, for my first year in 2008. And then we won that one and the next one. Um, and then I started playing for Australia. Uh, it, it, for me, it was it was always, there was always something new and something else mm-hmm. that I could try and achieve. And that was 
that for me was a mirror, just the way that I could try and improve myself hole to hole when I played and tried to get better all the time, day to day, week to week, month to month. Uh, the same thing kind of was true of my of my path upwards in the uh, development stuff in Australia. So I was now looking back, I'm very grateful that there was a ladder for me to climb. You know, it's not always true everywhere in the world. And I think Australia's got a really good system um, that needs to be preserved, uh, you know, because you get kids being competitive and playing against each other and traveling together, you know, is a, is a great thing for, and I think it's one of the reasons why we've had so many great pros. Um, and so after I started traveling internationally, I got an offer to go to Georgia for college when I was 19, which was complete happenstance. And looking back on it, it's just crazy how it happened. And, you know, they're the best golf program in the States, best college golf program, They've won the most conference championships of any mm-hmm. sport uh, in U.S. collegiate, um, the whole of every sport, and men's uh-huh. women's everything. So that opportunity was fantastic and, and got to meet a whole bunch of people I would have never come in contact with, um, which turned me into a much better person than, uh, than I could have hoped. Um, and then turned pro in 2012, and, and it's been kind of up from there. Yeah. The roller coaster of professional golf will come to all that as well. Yeah, absolutely. that progression sounds reasonably typical. But were you a yeah. typical sort of high performance golfer? I know you as a really thoughtful. I've often referred to you as the hippie golf pro. There's not many of you in that way. During that progression, did you feel different? Did you feel you fit with all the other kids? Because at that age, for the most part, it's not a particularly cerebral pursuit, is it? It's a very simplistic. Here's the ball. There's the hole. Get it in there for. Young boys especially, it's who can hit it the furthest and who can hit the longest seven iron. Were you like that or were you already thinking differently about the game? I was always a little bit of an outsider when I was a kid. I never really had um, much of an ability to fit in that well. I guess it's still true today. But uh, So for me, it it was... A left-wing leaning... Golf pro in the US is absolutely not fitting in, my friend. It's a little bit of a rarity. I've just learned how to communicate with people now uh, in a in a non direct way, and now I'm <laughs> able to have more friends. Um, but I think going through that was, yeah. I mean, I, I was a little bit different, uh, but again, the golf for me was the common denominator between mm-hmm. me and everyone else. You know, whether or not people thought I was cool, or whether I thought they were cool, or whether we agreed on things, or whether we were from similar backgrounds. Once we were playing golf, we were still just playing golf. And I think that's a very cool thing about the game. It's, a, it, it, it's like that everywhere in the world. Uh, it allows people to relate to each other who may not uh, otherwise relate to each other. Um, and in fact, you can play 18 holes with someone you've never met before and not realise until the end you're in fact diametrically opposed with your views on almost everything in the absolutely, world. And yet, absolutely. at golf, none of it matters. Hundred percent, and you know, if anything, we need more of that nowadays. So I think yeah, I think well, that the the game is good like that. Um, but no, you're. It was fairly typical coming through. I, I'm extremely competitive, have always been, uh, and it used to really annoy me that I could never beat Daniel Nisbet when we were juniors. Um, you know, he was very clearly better than me, um, but I was very clearly better than everyone else when we were juniors. So it was. We were kind of separated a little bit uh, in that way, um, but I could never beat him. And have you since? Well, we'll come, we might come to that. Since we've been a professional, like he's had some, he's had some um, 
He's just had a couple of wins, hasn't he? Yeah, he's had some wins. Uh, he stayed down in more Australia area and like that. You know, it's not really about things like that. But I, I, I would be confident uh, playing him in a money match now and feeling like we're on <laughs> even footing. The gauntlet's been mm-hmm. thrown down. If anybody out there in the thing about golf land wants to put up the stake, I'm sure that Daniel and Bryden will be the happy latest, to go the out. The match. <laughs> the match, that's right. <laughs> the match three. Was that difficult for you, that whole period? Teenage years are awkward enough, let alone being an outsider in a high-performance program and sport like golf, which has got all of its own issues as well. And where does that come from? Why are you like that? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I have no idea. I, I think that I've always um, had my own opinions and ways of kind of thinking my way through things. And I, and I guess I just haven't really met many people in my life that have thought about things in a similar way. Um, and when I was younger, I would think that that would mean that I shouldn't be around those people. And that has since changed. Uh, but when you're young, like you said, when you're a teenager, you, you, you don't really understand what's going on. Um, you know, your body's expanding in all directions and trying to just stay upright, basically. And <laughs> Isn't it so, yeah. yeah. So when I was, uh, it was, you know, not overly difficult, but I didn't have a great time at school. Like with, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of friends and things like that. So golf for me was more of an escape from from my teenage years than it was um, something piling on top of that. If I understand it correctly, your mum that became a federal court judge quite late in life. Was that right? Uh, well, she's not exactly late in life. Um, she's you know in her mid fifties now, mid late fifties, uh, and. So she uh, it was two thousand and eleven, I think, is when she got her, or two thousand and twelve. Um, not one hundred percent on that. Sorry, mum, if you're listening. But uh, it's Doug ten Bagley years. And it, your mum and it, your dad, you've offended already. <laughs> and we're what ten minutes in. Beautiful. It's okay. It normally, only takes me a couple of minutes on FaceTime anyway. So I think it was about uh, seven or eight years ago that she uh, got onto the bench. Uh, fairly normal for federal court judges. Uh, they're normally kind of in there mid 50s so she was actually maybe on the young side um for coming in and so she was uh by all accounts from people that i know in the legal community who are not her she was a bit of a fresh uh, a breath of fresh air coming into the court being a younger uh, liberal leaning woman well liberal leaning is maybe a little bit um she's very liberal uh, uh coming in i think that was uh something that was welcomed at the court mm. was that a thing at the time was a big deal made about that Gender politics is always bubbling just under the surface. Was that a bit of a thing? And what was what was it like? What sort of things did you learn from her? I feel like what you're describing your mum sounds to me more like what I know of you than perhaps your dad with the maths and everything having an actual answer at the end of it that's quite straightforward in a way. Yeah, my mum's always been a, a champion for gender equality, um, you know, pretty much since I was younger, uh, gender and racial equality. It's always been a theme running through my life um, that it's just never really been a question of mine that, that, was, that there was anything uh, unequal about genders, unequal about uh, different races, different nationalities. It was just... And that's something that I struggled with when I came over to the, uh, especially to the South, um, because, you know, I was kind of taught younger that people who uh, thought that people were unequal in some ways were bad people. And that was something I had to get over that, you know, they're not bad people. Those are just bad opinions. Um, so there is a difference there. Someone can be a good person and have a bad opinion. Um, but I think 
My mum's done a lot to uh, champion women in in law as well in Melbourne uh, and in Australia more broadly. But she she broke a lot of barriers for women in law, um, and I think that that example uh, of breaking barriers has been some, been something that I've kind of looked up to, um, probably subliminally my entire life. Uh, and I think it's always helpful to have someone who is a quote high achiever in your family um, as an example. Because that's not a small achievement, is it? For internationalists, no. yeah, the federal court's big deal. It is a big deal. To be yeah, it is. A young woman appointed to a federal court bench is a that's a big deal. It's, well, and the, th- and the things she did as a barrister were also quite important. She was also the first woman to ever run a case in the high court, um, uh-huh. and she won. Really? The, uh, yeah. Really? She's in her mid fifties, and she was the first woman to run a case in the high court. Yeah. First barrister. So, that's yeah. madness, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's there's the old school still very much exists in some areas of our community. I'm pretty sure that law is one of those. Um, Lots of golfers in that community too, as yes, you would there know. are. <laughs> yes. Um, well, there's a crossover there, uh, of course. So I think that yeah, she did a lot of things like that. She won the. I think it was of the president's award they call it something like that it was basically for they award it to the the best lawyer of the year type thing she was the first woman to win that as well and so she did a lot as a barrister and she had a very fulfilling career um and now she's moved on to the bench at the federal court and now that she's been there for six or seven years she is really starting to um come into her own and start to really uh you know change things for the better i believe yeah I ask all this because I'm interested in what shapes people and their outlook. And you're an outlier in golf with the way you think. And I think the, the upbringing that you're explaining is you're telling us about is explaining some of that in some ways. Because as you mentioned, you went to Georgia. It's not exactly a hotbed of political, racial, and gender equality historically, is it? It's, that it's part not, of the world. No. That must have been quite confronting. And then you're the kid from Australia with all the expectations that comes with that, you're not fitting in necessarily, which you're probably not unused to. You've had your whole teenage years not to fit in. But this is – going to college is a huge opportunity first step on a professional career. That's the reality of it. Uh, What was that period like and how did you find that you adjusted? I think you you and Jordan Spieth were uh, the same era. And, in fact, I think you once told me that early on, most would have suggested you were the more likely to go on and do what Jordan has since done. Well, yeah. Uh, in hindsight, Jordan was much better equipped than I was. But um, at the time, yes, I think there was promise put on. Uh, I think the class coming through then, uh, the three of us kind of at the top of the the class there were Jordan, myself, and Patrick Cantley. Um, but it was the best decision I ever made in my life um, to go to school in Georgia. Uh the first six months that I was there were, I don't want to say miserable, but it was the same old, same old from when I was in high school. Didn't really have a lot of friends, didn't really get along with anyone. The only person I really got along with was Russell Henley, and that's because he's just as weird as I am. And <laughs> it was only during the summer that uh, before the summer started, you know, we have all the events, amateur events we play. So, like the Northeast Am, the Dogwood, all the US Am, all these events. So, we play Southern Am, Porter Cup, all these ones. And all our guys from the team would play them as well, obviously. Before the summer happened, our coach sat me down, Coach Hack, and he said, he goes, you know, you've come in here and you're very opinionated and you're kind of very strong in your opinions and we respect that, you know, but 
you know, don't you want to have friends? You know, it's a very Southern kind of, uh, hang on a second, don't you want to be like happy as well as right? You know, uh, sometimes <laughs> there's a, sometimes there's a trade off there. Um, and in your own mind, not in like, you know, the objective world, but subjectively there's a bit of a trade off between being happy and right a lot of the time in our lives. So I think after he sat me down, I sort of took a look at it and I go, Oh yeah, maybe I do need to sort of do this. And so over the summer, it's not like I went out of my way, but I, I was a lot more, forgiving of other people's different cultural upbringings than what I had and started to look at beyond what a person said sometimes to what they were like in general. And that was a huge step for me uh, growing up. And when we came back in the fall, you know, I was getting along great with, I was going to play holes with Hudson, just me and him. And I was laughing with Harry about stuff that I never thought I'd laugh about. And I had these friends and I've still got them, haven't spoken to them in a while, but we could pick up right where we left off, you know. So then over the next the next year where we really made a run at the national championship, you know, we were a team and I was friends with people that I never thought I would be friends with and that was amazing. We all think we're right, don't we? Absolutely. Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't think the things we do. Nobody says to themselves, I'm going to think the wrong thing here. <laughs> <laughs> would be yeah, yeah. madness. But we live in a world that's very divisive now, we know, politically in particular. There seems to be either black or white. They're the only two two options. And the reality of humanity is that shades of grey are the majority of stuff. This is a golf podcast. What's all that got to do with golf? How does that impact golf? Does it help? Does it hurt? I said at the outset that being thoughtful, and, and I've encountered this in a few. Meg McLaren is one. She's very bright. I'm not sure it's – I'm not sure ultimately it's uh, – great for golfers to be as thoughtful and deep thinking. I think you can tie yourself in knots. What does all that do for you, all that's happening off course, for your actual golf? Were you achieving at Georgia? Were you doing what? I did pretty well my first semester. You know, I won SEC Southeastern Conference for the Australians this thing. Uh, I won SEC uh, Freshman of the Year, having only played half a season. Um so I, I was doing all right early, uh, but then it kind of set in after that that fall, after that first summer, where I just got a, I got really lost. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. Didn't have a good handle on how I was swinging the club, what I was trying to do with my swing, and it just got it got really really bad um, to the point where I just I didn't know what I was doing. Felt completely lost. And so, what uh, happens there, Brighton? How does that happen? Is that a physical thing or a mental thing? You, you think it has to be mental? You've got there with a golf swing that. Well, it's probably good enough to compete on most tours around the world if you're at the number one school in America and you're doing well. You're a good enough player to compete, you know, at a world-class level. What happens? How does that fall apart? Well, I see it as like a as a, a type of cycle between physical and mental. I think it, it, it can start as something physical or mental, but it alternates. So if you have something mental pop up that you can't get over, say maybe you're not old enough to f- figure out, that you need to get over it, that could manifest itself as something physical. And then that physical, whatever it is, you know, a miss to the right, a constant miss to the right, you know, a constant miss to the left, a chunking of wedge shots, whatever it is, a missing of two or three footers, something like that, if it gets in there and you're not strong enough mentally to realize that it has just come out of nowhere, it can reinforce that mental block that you have. And then 
it goes round and round and round and round. And it's happened to me multiple times with different parts of my game where you get completely tied in a knot and you don't really know what to do. Um, I was at that point that would have been the mid part of the spring. So that would have been sort of February, March in 2011, uh, where I just, I didn't have any clue how to hit the ball on the planet. Um, and I was getting by, not really, with my short game uh, and my perseverance, I guess, uh, trait that I, I sort of tend to have. Um, Had this happened to you before? No. At any other point in your sort of amateur career at that point? No, it hadn't. But I'd always been coddled by coaches. So I'd always had someone there to reach out to if something like this did start happening. Or someone that I could reach out to that could tell me that it was okay, that it was going to be fine, that it was... And, but this was the first time that it was on me. Uh, and I was kind of on my own because, you know, my swing coach at the time was in Australia and I was in Athens, Georgia. Um, and yeah, so I, I was completely lost. Then it was only when the, the coaches at Georgia stepped in uh, at the national championship after I shot 81 in the first round at Carston Creek, which which is Oklahoma State's home golf course, which is pretty easy to do. It's very, very tight, um, and it's jungle on both sides. Uh, lots of guys have big scores around that golf course, but you know, for me, I, and I was just on the range, and I'm thinking, what do I do? And one of the coaches comes down, and he just he's, he says, all right, we're, all we're going to do is focus on your rhythm and trust that your golf swing is good enough to hit decent shots and go from there. And that was what carried me through into, I think I shot one under in the second round, which was big for our team, and won my matches in the match play section. And then I won the British Amateur the next week. Um, but it was, it's kind of like a, a, that was a big lesson for me uh, in that it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, but it hasn't stopped me from falling back into that same trap in other parts of my game since. Um, not to mention the same trap with my swing as well. It's only been in the last six months that I've actually feel like I've transcended um, all of that crap. Right. <laughs> Terrific timing, just in time for world golf to stop completely. Absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely nowhere to, to test it and, uh, and achieve. Within all of that, how much identity is wrapped up in golf at the level that you play at? Uh, so by that, when that happens to you, you shoot 81. What does that do to you in reverse away from the course? And when you're struggling away from the course, how does it affect your golf? But when your golf suddenly goes south, does that have personal psychological impacts? I would imagine at that age, you've got an awful lot invested in the numbers that you shoot. Yeah, I think uh, for, a, for a long time, golf was everything for me. It was kind of how I identified. Um, and so, yeah, I would take that stuff very hard. Uh, it was something that I had to pick myself up um, pretty much every morning when it was when it was difficult uh something that is not difficult on the world scale of difficulties that people have to deal mm -hmm. with it's, but it's it a real first world problem isn't it my elite golf problem. game is not as sharp as it was last week absolutely let's talk about that 2011 british amity you said it came the week after a, a very tumultuous time by the sound of it at that tournament, 81 in the first round, one under the second round, finding something. What do you remember about that week? Uh, I remember a lot about that week. 
it's it was a testament to the fact that you need luck to win golf tournaments. Um, I came in thinking that uh, I was playing okay, um, is enjoying being in the UK. It's my favorite place to play golf, basically. Uh, it's a great part of the world. They're in Lancashire, hillside, beautiful golf course. Uh, second course was Hesketh, also a good golf course. And, you know, I, I played... What did I play? I played pretty well in the first round. Um, not that well. I think I was still maybe a little jet-lagged. And second round, I played really nicely around Hillside and shot two under uh, to qualify for the match play easily. It's my third British Open. qualifying and then match play. And then match play, yep. Yeah. So uh, 64 guys. sixty, Yeah, 64 guys. Uh, and I had played pretty well. I think I qualified somewhere in the middle. Um and my first round went to the 19th hole uh, where my opponent missed about a two-foot putt on the 19th hole to keep it going. And then we halved the 20th and then I hold like a 20-footer to win on the 21st. Wow. So it was could have been all over right then. Uh-huh. Um, Sliding doors, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's it's Again, that's kind of the thing of golf. Like uh-huh. it all makes sense in retrospect but never makes sense when it's happening. Uh-huh. Uh, and from there, I found a little – rhythm with my putter and I start was hitting the ball okay sort of in play enough that around a Lynx golf course where it's hard to be a perfectly precision ball striker that I could beat guys with my putter and I just stayed very confident and calm and I remember winning the semi-final match uh two and one I think uh and or three and two can't remember and going to the final and I remember I topped it off the first tee of the final, uh, tried to hit like a flighted hybrid down the first hole and hit the top half of the ball and bounded down the fairway about 180 yards and hit it up by the green, two-putted from the edge for par for a half. And uh, I remember it being a real slog. You know, the last round was 36-hole final. I was never more than two up and I was never down. So we were always around me and Mikey Stewart, who I played against, we were always pretty evenly matched. No one ever got any real momentum. We were both kind of scrapping it around. Um, I think we both brought our B-minus games that day, um, but I think I brought my A putting game. Uh, he brought his B-plus putting game, and that's that was really the difference. Um I remember vividly on the 15th hole, little dogleg left around uh, around a sand dune, hitting a six iron at the flag, which was a rare occurrence that week, uh, to about 30 feet just short. Mikey was three feet in front of me. So I'm putting first. One of those classic match play situations that having grown up in Australia and played pennant, state team, all kinds of stuff, you recognize them. It's kind of this feeling that, well... If I make this, he's going to miss his. Mm-hmm. If I miss this, he's going to make his. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like those are the only two options, uh, which, of course, they're not. No, no, but, but you're in the bubble at that stage, aren't you? At, su- at some yeah. point, you can feel these things, uh, mm-hmm. and you're very surprised by any uh, other occurrence. And I rolled this 30-footer straight in the heart, and I remember jumping up in the air and fist-pumping to go – three up with three to play. And um, 
I couldn't believe it. And then the next hole was part long par three that I'd hit it left every day. And we remember we'd been there for about a week and a half. So every day I'd hit it left of this green and left is the only place you can't hit it. So I aimed basically 40 yards right of the green, tried to hit this big draw in there and hit it right of the green, uh, chipped up. Mikey missed his 20-footer, which he actually had a great shot in there. And then I hold less three-footer. Um, I remember putting the ball down and not lining it up properly and then ab- about to start my routine and thinking, well, it's to win the pretty shame. You could probably line this one up properly. So I went down and relined it up, hold it. And, and sitting on the cart going back to the clubhouse, I was just thinking to myself, what just happened? Um, mm. You know, I think if there was an amateur tournament that I wanted to win, uh, it was that. Uh, just like I think if there's a professional event I want to win, it, I want, it wants to be the Open for me. Mm. Um yeah, it was a very surreal experience. And uh, one of my good friends at the time, Fraser Fotheringham, had dro- driven down from northern Scotland to watch me. I'd been with him before the event started up there. And so then we drove six and a half hours in separate cars up to nor- back up to northern Scotland and we got up there and and uh, I think drank one of the beer, the, um, the bars out of their pints. And uh, yeah, it was just a really cool experience. So the... I was introduced to a saying last week, which I'd never heard before, but which makes a lot of sense, and it might make sense to you in this situation. It's better to have travelled well than have landed. Mm-hmm. Winning the British Amateur, you land, don't you? This is kind of what happened to Javal. Mm-hmm. He landed. The, the, the famous story of being on the jet on the way back after the 2001 Open win and thinking to himself, was this it? Mm-hmm. We've had similar stories. Rory McIlroy spoke on a podcast the other week about I think it was winning the Mullingar, which is a big event in Ireland at 16, driving home with his dad in the car in tears, wanting to give the game away, having just won mm-hmm. a big event. Does that any of that gel with you? Does that make sense in hindsight? Well, you know, I, I feel a theme developing because it comes back to one of those things. It's just you realise after you win something like that, and luckily I had a chance, I had a, the opportunity to win some big amateur events uh, and some professional events, and it's funny how fleeting the feeling of winning is. Um, you realize that when you look back, the winning is great. The winning moment is, is burned into your memory and it's, it's a fantastic thing to reflect on. But what you actually enjoy is the, the fight to get there. Um, and I think that's another thing that parallels life is that, you know, we go through life looking for the next thing that we can get that will then make us happy. And then we realize that it's not true because there's something else waiting on the other side. It's a journey, not a destination, isn't it? Yeah. And I, th- and I think that, um, you know, those who are more introspective uh, in golf can, can realize that and then derive a lot of joy from just playing tournament golf, um, which also helps you play better tournament golf, uh, unrelated of course it's just an extra bonus because the real joy that you get from it is actually from going through the process of competing and and for me now enjoying the feelings of nerves and you know concern and stress and uh, relief all kinds of emotions that flow through you i'm getting chills now just thinking about it it's that's the great part you know, winning is great. It's the best. It's what we're. It's a, that's the goal. Winning is the mountain top that you're trying to climb. But you know, if you just 
blanking out the entire climb, you've missed out on so much and you'll get up there and realize that there's another peak to climb somewhere else. It's, I think that's one of the reasons why guys suffer I, even after winning big events. Um, I, I think that it's, it, there's an opportunity for them to really learn something from that and, and I hope that they do. Um, because there's a lot to be learned from the game, and that's one of the great things that you can learn. And, and that's true at every level, whether it be a, a B-grade tournament at your own home club. Absolutely. Or, or the Open or the Masters or, or on the biggest stages. One of the cruelest things about golf is that it's very binary. You either shoot the number or you don't. Yeah. But it's not a game, clearly for you and for many, that can be approached with a black and white, this is the right and this is the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Once you get to a certain level, where you were at the end of 2016, it can be extremely dangerous to do the Costanza, the opposite of everything that I think is what I should do. Was that a difficult decision to make? It's gone wrong for a lot of people, and it's gone right for some people too. We know that. Mm -hmm. So what goes into making that decision? Because you're talking about something that's really important to you personally and professionally. Yes. That's a frightening place to be, isn't it? Obviously want to try avoiding throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, but I think I may have a little bit. Um, but I, I never, I don't really know. But again, I think the only way that you can really fix a problem is to go through it with a fine tooth comb. And I've gone through my game from top to bottom and side to side with a fine tooth comb uh, to get to a point where it felt um, workable and simple in every area of the game because I knew that there was an understanding out there that was simultaneously deep and complete and also simple. Uh, and it exists for those listening who are wondering if it does. It absolutely exists. Uh, the best players got there. The best players knew everything about what they were doing. Uh, But they didn't think about everything they were doing while they were doing it. That's the difference. That's what it is. That's golfing nirvana. That's what you're trying to achieve is to know. isn't it? You just do. Yeah. Well, I mean, they still understand. They're still operating the machine. They're just Mm -hmm. not. They're operating it from one or two levers, not all 50,000 of them. Yeah. At, at any given time. So so I, I guess that begs the question. At, at every point along the journey, you always think you're doing the right thing, don't you? Absolutely. You have to. You Otherwise, have to. Yeah. the journey sort of stops. So then the question becomes, how do you know this time? You're clearly quite confident. Something's obviously changed in the last six months. You've referenced the last six months two or three times now. Mm-hmm. So clearly something's sort of changed in there. What is that? And how do you both have complete confidence that you're now right and also understand that there may require some further changes down the track, that that's quite possible. How do you do that? That's a neat trick, isn't it, mentally? Yeah. Well, so, again, people that know me won't be surprised uh, by this, but, you know, I've always believed that the way to approach anything is with 100% confidence in what you think you know Mm -hmm. until you're proven otherwise then to take that on board and then be 100% confident in what you know now, now that someone has shown you how you're wrong about something. 
But the isn't challenge just being but, flaky, Bryden, isn't that flip flopping politically? Isn't that what flip floppers do? I mean, yes, and somehow that's a bad thing. Um, yet we encourage evolution in in people's personas. You know, you you don't get to hold on to your beliefs forever. It's not something that you get to keep. And I think if you try and hold on to that, then you're you're uh, depriving yourself of growth. I think. You know, you have to believe in what you're doing, but you have to be open to being wrong with enough evidence. Um, and so that's exactly where I am now. I have I have 100% confidence in what I'm doing, and I've been here before. Uh, but I will approach everything that I do with this level of confidence until it's right or right enough. And so I, there's a there's a chance that what I'm doing is wrong. But I'm experiencing things now that I haven't experienced in the past. That's what gives me confidence. Uh, because so I, I guess I, even if it's wrong, you'll have learned something. A hundred, yeah, absolutely. I've learned. I've learned something from every time I've been wrong. Um, I've picked up something from every time I've been a hundred percent confident in what I think I know, and then proven to be wrong. You know, even if it's just humility, you know, I've learned something from it. Every single time. Aren't you unnecessarily complicating something that you were, had already mastered? Golf ultimately is just the physical act of taking a club, swinging it, hitting the ball to where you want, and then hitting it to where you want again, and then hitting it in the hole. Aren't you unnecessarily overcomplicating that in this sort of quest? Can't you go off and find yourself as a better person, but just keep hitting the ball where you want it and win golf tournaments along the way? Why can't they just be separate? That's a good, really good question. Uh, in my mind, they're never separate because you're the same person who's doing both of those things. Um, and if you're depriving yourself the opportunity to grow while you're on the golf course, then the rest of your life is going to suffer. Um, I have been accused of overcomplicating things my entire life. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've got a very complex answer to that too. <laughs> Personally, I think it's because I am a perfectionist who is incredibly competitive. So, I don't like to settle for things that are half-baked. And so, I have trouble accepting things that are half-baked because when someone says to me, for all the people out there that say that you overcomplicate things, there's also people that challenge your understanding on things. And it irks me when I can't explain what I'm doing. Um when someone smarter than me says, why do you do that? And the only answer I've got is because I do. I'm also reminded of something Jeff Ogilvie said, and this will make sense to you, I guess, and, and, and you might be able to expand on it a bit. Everybody's always trying to copy the best, but the best never copy anybody. Tiger did it his way and has sparked a generation of players, many of them trying to do it Tiger's way. Mm-hmm. That can't work, can it? Maybe it that's the lesson you've learned. In some ways? Yeah. I mean, and Jeff's 100% right. You know, the the best people by definition are the ones who have figured out how to do it their way the best. So, if, anyone, if anything you're trying to copy for the best players, it should be to find your own way and do that the best, not, uh, not do it their way. The game's changed an awful lot in a lot of ways. You mentioned technology. You mentioned you had some strong opinions. So let's just get a thumbnail sketch of some of your thoughts about technology and its impacts on the game. And then we might break down some of that stuff as to why it might be important more broadly than just the first world 
golf's inner gazings of <laughs> of why it's changed <laughs> changed by maybe why the game's less or more interesting. Well, firstly, I would uh, actually disagree with the idea that science is somehow now more apparent in golf than it was 80 years ago. Um, it's not. The science is the same. Uh, the actual science of the golf swing, things that you can't see, that you can only feel, things like gravity and centrifugal force and centripetal force and the forces going through a club shaft and through a club head, through someone's hands, through the ground, are all the same. <laughs> the science that I think is the term now we give to sports science around physiology and uh, how a swing looks on camera and performs on track man, that stuff has developed. Um but that doesn't, like I said, it doesn't change any of the actual physical, like physics science that happens in a golf swing. So there was definitely more of an art involved when um, the golf balls span more, when you had ballada balls. Uh, the art of controlling your irons and shaping your tee shots, although nowhere near as far as now, is definitely changed. So the artistic form of ball striking has, you know, slowly disintegrated. Um, and that is due to technology. Uh, that is due to the consumerizing, <laughs> that's not a word, but of me. technology. Um, the tailoring of technology to the average golfer not to the professional golfer uh and professional golfers not realizing that they are different sports professional golf and uh recreational recreational golf what i do those are different sports they are as different as footy and cricket um so it makes no sense to me why people would use the same technology across those things so I'll start with the fact that uh, golf swings now are heralded as being better than they were, you know, 50 years ago in the 70s. Um, They may look nicer on a 2D camera, but they are certainly not better. The best swings are the same. The guys doing it the best are still doing it the best in the same ways. Um, technology has gotten clubs, sorry, have gotten lighter, have gotten more upright. Upright lie angles were not a thing until Ping came along and decided to fix the average golfer Rod Murray's slice on the range by giving him a club that was four degrees more upright than the one that he was using. Mm-hmm. That's a quick fix to sell a set of clubs for a thousand bucks there on the range. Um, that's the capitalization of the golf technology industry. That's a golf business. It's not golf. That's the golf business. That's right. Mm. Right. Which I fully support, by the way. I totally support. It's paying your rent or mortgage of the place wherever you used to, whether you, I don't know whether you're is. renting or buying, but that's paying it. The you know the golf equipment companies play a very important part in allowing people to enjoy the game easier 
Mm-hmm. That's a very important part of our game because as much as I love professional golf and think that it is uh, yeah, really golf in its truest form, it doesn't exist without recreational golf. So, they are symbiotic in that way. So, while that plays a really important part in getting your average golfers interested in the game, it doesn't. it has an actual corrosive effect on the professional game. Um, and by corrosive, I mean that there are players on tour who are on tour because of equipment. Um, they don't have the skill set that w- would have been required to play on tour with the equipment 50 years ago. Um, not to say that they couldn't develop that skill set, mm-hmm. but right now they don't have it because the equipment doesn't require them to. So, swings have changed to become more upright and not, I mean, faster, but not really. Um, Players are not more athletic than they were 50 years ago. That's not a thing. Um, Players are in probably better shape than they were 50 years ago. Guys are maybe thinner and they spend more time on their peloton. But Jack Nicholas still moved the club north of 120 miles an hour, and those clubs were heavier. Um, ben Hogan, I don't know if you've ever seen him swing it on video, but it's not like uh-huh. he's just smoothing it down the fairway. He was ripping it, mm-hmm. moving it very, very fast. It doesn't take athleticism to move a club fast um, if you do it correctly. What is happening simultaneously is because equipment is getting lighter and more upright, players' swings are changing to fit that, And what that's doing is actually causing more problems than what it's solving because players are getting injured from swinging golf clubs. That was not a thing. Ben Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Bobby Jones, Jack Nicholas. Nicholas never had an injury, did he? These guys up until the mid-80s, mid-90s, no one got injured from swinging a golf club. Because it wasn't a thing. It's not an injury thing. It's not something that should give you an injury if you do it correctly. And if you do it incorrectly, you'll get feedback on that and you'll get an injury. Mm. Whereas now, equipment is allowing so many different swings to function on tour that guys are getting injured. And they think that it's somehow connected to the physiology, but it's not. It's connected to their golf swings. If I gave you something heavy and I asked you to swing it as fast as you could, your response would be to lift that thing up as high as you could to swing it fast with a ceiling being on about hip height. You'd be able to move that really fast at about parallel to the ground, granted, Mm -hmm. if you could hold it up. Now, if I gave you that thing and told you to swing it in what would be a really upright golf motion and try and go fast, which one are you going to get injured doing? You've got... Now, I know a lot of like a lot about the physiology and stuff. I'm big into the gym and all that, but I'm not delusional thinking that that is what's preventing my injuries. It's my golf swing. So, if you're going to swing upright, you're going to get all kinds of funky external and internal rotations of your shoulder and your wrist. You're going to get all kinds of QL, which is your lower back side bending and stabilizing injuries. All these things don't happen to people who play T-ball because T-ball is parallel to the ground. That's how our bodies are designed to swing things fast. So, equipment 
has created this culture of getting injured from swinging a golf club. And then around that has the sports science thing has sprung up to solve the problem that doesn't need to exist. <clears throat> we'll make it strong enough so it doesn't break and we can continue to use it in the incorrect way. Yes. I guess fundamentally as a concept, every generation has just answered the questions that have been asked of them, haven't they? That, that's Essentially, that's what sport is. And as golf has evolved and different technology, the questions have changed. The intent, you can understand the, the fascination with this, and we all have it. We all want to hit the ball as far as we possibly can. There's something extremely satisfying about that. The difference with golf, and that's fine in AFL. If people learn to kick at 100 metres, because of, then that's fantastic. But in golf, it fundamentally changes the challenge of the arm wrestle between the course and the player. It seems that we have a focus in the modern era only on the player, that the player is the only and the most important aspect of golf, when in fact the golf course and golf courses generally have an equal role to play. Does that make sense, what I'm saying there? And that if you if you give too much um, power is the wrong word, if the balance shifts too much in, in favour of the player, the game as a whole is diminished because the course no longer can keep up and make the contest interesting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's again a little another difference between recreational golf and professional golf is that for the most part, recreational golfers are playing against themselves and the golf course. And whereas professional golfers are playing against each other on the golf course. Mm. So, the golf course is what's asking the questions and then the professional golf event is who can answer those questions the best um, over four rounds. So, when you have equipment changing things so that golf courses become obsolete, those competitions become boring because the players are getting asked the same question every week. So the same guys are winning every week. So now that's, a, that's marketable, though, isn't it, Bryden? If you're the PGA Tour, isn't that what you want? You find the players that are marketable, and you manipulate things so that they continue to win. And that way, what you've got yourself is a lovely little marketable sport where the people that are popular sort of win. That's maybe putting something more nefarious on the PGA Tour than, it act, than in reality. But I know you've sort of suggested this before, that the way golf courses are being set up particularly around is changing to accommodate a certain style of player. And the reasons for that might be that that certain style of player is popular with the public and marketable. Is that true? I would agree. Uh, I think that the PGA Tour has made a decision that the way that they're going to get non-golf fans interested in the PGA Tour is with driving distance. Um, this guy hit it 370, this guy hit it 360, you know, um, failing to mention that it was in Arizona and it was downwind because it doesn't sound as, uh, or it was in Utah uh, where it's 10,000 feet above sea level. So there is, there has been a conscious decision along the lines somewhere. Um, and that has, precipitated a negative effect on the game because it's turned into it's edging closer and closer to a long drive contest than it is a true test of the game um just because like i said players are getting asked only a few questions every round you know uh not to oversimplify it but they're getting asked the question who can 
hit it the furthest, uh, who can putt the best, um, and who can hit the most greens uh, in regulation from, which is easier the further that you hit it. Mm-hmm. That's basically what guys are being asked. Uh, I think you could see that with the fact that there's not really anyone at the top level of the game at the moment who's considered a short game specialist. Mm-hmm. I remember when there was lots of guys, Luke Donald made it to number one in the world, basically yeah. being the best bunker player in the world. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and well, I think that that's, bad? that's also a very good question uh, because it's not the true essence of the game. Um, and again, I sound a little bit like a traditionalist and some people will probably rightfully say that I should evolve and move on from what should be the uh, idea of what traditional golf is. But I'm just of the belief that you have 14 clubs in your bag for a reason. Uh, you shouldn't only use seven of them. Um, our game is supposed to be in different conditions uh on different conditions mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be easy and predictable i think feel like that goes against the grain of what the game actually is um so i th- i don't think it's too much to ask that the professional sport also represents that um and i think that it's turned into a little bit of a cookie cutter situation in the u.s not with the majors um, you know, the Masters is the Masters. They do a very good job of maintaining the spirit of their tournament. The Open does the same thing. The PGA has the best field in golf. Uh, and the US Open always keeps us interested with their course selections and course <clears throat> setups. Um, I think that's part of the reason why they get so many complaints from players is because it's consistently very different from what they're used to on the PGA Tour. And while sometimes if the greens at Shinnecock are rolling 17 and guys can't keep it on the green, that might not be a good thing. But I don't think it's a bad thing for the game to have guys having to answer different questions than what they normally have to. It's just a thing, isn't it? They actually, it's us that attaches labels about good and bad. I agree with most of what you say. To me, the, the problems are that the game will ultimately cannibalise itself at the professional level if they're not careful. This drive to attract non-golfers to watch professional golf has the cart before the horse, in my mind. The reality of golf spectating is that, for the most part, it's only those of us who play who are interested in watching others play. There's a couple of times a year where that's not true. The Masters, the Open and the Ryder Cup are probably the three events that really draw big numbers from outside of golf. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, it's people who play. And if you start trying to focus on people who don't play, it's an interesting theory Adrian, who I, Adrian Logue, who I co-host a different podcast with, he's posited this notion that the PGA Tour seem to be trying to make the game look more like a video game at the top level. And there's some truth with grids on the fairways and the top tracer, and there's some you know there's a lot of good stuff uh, in all of that which makes it interesting. My camera's of course just dropped out, so you can't see me. And I'm making some fabulous hand gestures here, so that's a real shame. <laughs> And you can sort of see that, can't you, this notion that it almost becomes a virtual world where you don't need to play golf. To, but, but to me, if you're going to appreciate golf, professional golf, watching golf, you need to understand just how hard it is. And the only way to understand how hard it is is to have a go at it yourself and realise it's extraordinarily humiliating and emasculating on a daily basis. The game just beats you down. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's profit maximisation 
that's what it is. You know, they've basically run out of areas to profit from inside of the game. So they're starting to look more outside of the game to continue to grow the purses beyond 8 million. Um, do the purses need to be beyond 8 million is a conversation we can have. Probably not. They should probably keep up with inflation where one point, no, sorry, $1.8 million isn't enough to pay your mortgage at, if we ever get to that point. They should That's probably why it doesn't up. want to give slow play penalties, mate, because somebody might lose some money that they were going to spend on a renovation or an extension to the house. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, how, like how much is enough is kind of a uh, interesting question to it's ask. A bigger question. Is that Corbyn got hammered for suggesting that nobody needs to be a billionaire, and he got hammered by professional golfers before the UK election. Yeah. Uh, I mean, professional golf is interesting. It's a little different in my mind to the the subject of whether or not billionaires should exist because someone like Jeff Bezos, who contributes something, uh, what some a lot of people would uh, consider irreplaceable to society, he probably deserves to be successful because he's created something amazing um, that we all use and benefit from every day. Maybe not everyone in Australia, but certainly everyone in the US. That's different from a professional golfer uh, claiming that they should make $1.9 million instead of $1.8 million for In fact, what they're, what they're actually playing. saying is there shouldn't be a cap. The, the, the general thing of that is that yeah. why would you say it should be one point? It should be whatever the market will bear. I I completely agree. I, I'm very free market oriented in that thing. It should be worth whatever it's bringing in. Now, the question that the PGA Tour is asking, I believe, is that, well, let, how do we bring more in? Um, how do we expand the game to non-golf fans who are going to watch things on TV and show up and buy beers? I also have nothing wrong with the odd tournament like the Phoenix, like the waste management in Phoenix being a party Finally, tournament. I disagree on something. <laughs> I have nothing wrong with an event having a characteristic as a party event. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with a tour being characteristic as a party tour. You know, but events are allowed to have their own character. Um, that's part of the fun. Players can choose to play or not choose to play. But players can't choose to play the PGA Tour or not if the whole game is going that way. So, I think it's a. They should really let the the game still maintain its integrity, but I just don't think that that viewpoint has much of a weight in the United States, um, which is disappointing because it certainly used to. You know, all They're the great interesting golf times, aren't they? All the great this golf courses, all the great golfers, all yeah. had this like uh, you know, your Ben Hogan, your Sam Snead, mm-hmm. Jack Nicholas, Tom Watson, Arnold Palmer had this. You could tell when you hear them speak, they had this deep connection to the game um, that they didn't feel like was worth jeopardizing with uh, commercialization. Mm. Interesting times for the game, aren't they? These are interesting times yeah, across sure the board, they and. Sure are. I- of all the sports, golf is the one I think that has more, more things to, more interesting sort of offshoots to deal with that are much more, as you say, kind of mirror life and society more generally. Lots of questions. What are the answers? What do we do about? <clears throat> let's just take distance. 
if we if we both here accept the notion that the ball goes too far, what do we do about it? Because it only goes too far for you. How far do you hit it? I'm so, my I think my stats say my driving average is around 300 yards. So um, you're you're short. That's why you're complaining. You can't hit it 350. That's right. Of course you're not short. Active. Short. That's right. I 300 is pretty long. average these days, isn't it? I, I don't hit it long. I hit it. Uh, I, I always tell people that I'm in the bottom of the top third of driving distance uh-huh. um, because I don't hit it short, but I don't hit it long either. You're long enough to so, compete. Long enough to compete. Long enough that the bunkers that are at 280 yards are not a problem for me. Right. So, which is. Think about that for a moment, of, people. 280 yards, 250 meters. There's a bunker out there at that distance, and you tee up on a Saturday morning. And if you're Bryden, you don't even think about it. It's a carry hazard. You just Straight carry over. it over that. Straight over it. Yeah. You know, personally, I think the ball should come back a little bit. Uh, I think that technology has gotten a little bit out of control for the professionals. Right. So, uh, not f- for everybody or just for you? No, just for the professionals. Right. So, because a bifurcated game. A, a two sets we, of equipment rules. We already play a bifurcated game. Oh, I know that. The game is very, very different. The game shifts from being 90% physical in the recreational game to 90% mental when you play the professional game. That, for me, is enough of a transformation that it's a different sport altogether. So I don't see a problem. Uh, as I've stated earlier, I'm very open to being proven wrong on this. Uh, I would love for the people involved in the golf industry to explain to me why a professional golf ball would be detrimental to the golfing industry um i'd love to hear it anyone Mm, (laughs) but i I don't don't know i I can't see the answer you know my personal opinion that i give to people that ask me uh is that i think we should do what tennis does i think we should have a standardized golf ball i think we should have it change depending on the tour or the event that you're playing in that way that the manufacturers can still manufacture different balls i think you're fundamentally changing the nature of the game if you do that though players have always been free to choose the equipment that suits them best and i think that's a that's an important facet of the game to to me if you just switch the parameters of the ball which might be more difficult than it sounds necessarily but i think we all agree a ball that spun more if you could introduce a minimum spin rate for the professional tours and change the materials to actually decrease the distance the ball can go overall feels like you would solve a lot of the problems without meddling with the fundamental challenges of the game that have been in existence for its entire professional existence. Mm-hmm. That's a, to me, that seems the... You could also make the ball bigger as well. Uh, they did that before. <clears throat> uh, Lighter. Yeah. Take a bit of weight off it. Yep. I think just making the ball slightly bigger and keeping the if you if, if it was a decent amount bigger, five percent bigger, and the hole was the same size, uh, that would also have a, a secondary effect on putting. If you want to um, hear some complaining, give that a crack, Brian. In fact, walk into a clubhouse at a professional event and suggest that. See how you go. You'll be eating alone, my friend, if you were yeah. already. Oh, trust me, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm very aware of how this stuff is is uh, is received by my fellow. But you're not alone, though, are you? I'm not. Uh, I'm maybe alone in current competitors, uh, but I think a lot of ex-competitors, at least guys who aren't competing at the high, high level anymore, who were there in the past, I think those are the guys with the biggest voices. Um, Tiger's ty- had, he's and he's been saying it for more than a decade, that yes. he thinks distance is an issue. So Yeah, and, and 
it is it is an issue and the fact that tiger is saying something you know definitely means a lot he's been saying more recently yeah. when it when he's got less to lose yeah um he wasn't exactly vocal about it when he first got on tour in the early late nineties, early two thousand. He wasn't vocal so. in two thousand when Nike gave him the new ball that changed the game. <laughs> he wasn't yeah, too vocal exactly. about it then. We know that, but yeah, and, and I mean, I think we're all subject to changing circumstances, changing our opinions. Uh, I, I don't think that you know we can uh, claim exemption from that. But uh, I mean, I think what you need to do is um, make hitting driver a risk again. Uh, it's not a risk uh, at the moment. Um, players, uh, crowds used to go, ooh, when someone pulled out a driver because they were taking a risk by hitting driver. I th- think that needs to come back into the game. Um, I think the art of the long iron needs to come back into the game um, because then it really is still golf. Uh, you know, if it was up to me and I got to choose the rules, I would take the same approach that the Major League Baseball took when they saw that the aluminium, aluminum for the Americans listening, bats started to come in. And they looked at it and they said, we're not too keen on having to rebuild our stadiums every five years. So what we're going to do is we're going to make these bats illegal and bats must be made of wood. Would have been nice had we shut the door on... Would have been nice technology in golf to have at the same point in woods the- be wood and irons be iron and shafts be steel. That would be a very clean way uh, to change a lot of things. But the ball makes a big difference. Yeah. So the ball is really where the crux is. Well, yeah, it's it, it's the most obvious solution, isn't it? Because it's all encompassing, and if you start changing clubs and it's also the most, rules, it's, like- it's also the most impactful. Uh, I have. Um, a set of uh, persimmons and and ballada balls in my car that I play with on a regular occasion. Good on you. And because, it, like I said, it is the true essence of the game. And it's more interesting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the better it's, a player you are, the more interesting it is. It is. And the I think bigger the gap co- between how interesting it is and how modern, yeah. how modern golf. I think you can control your irons better with persimmon. Uh, sorry, with um, ballada balls and blades. Uh, I use blades now, but you know, even with the old ones that I have. Now, the difference is, is that I hit it 50 yards shorter with the driver. Um, so, but I don't hit, if I hit the persimmon wood with my ball that I use now, the Titleist Pro V1, little plug there for Titleist, uh, it, it's not 50 yards. It's more like 20. So, the ball is where you make the biggest impact mm-hmm. um, because the, the, the equipment can be made of wood and steel, but the balls will still go very far. So I think it's a important uh, juncture to take the the ball in. Um, I don't agree with the guys who say that shortening the ball would just still put the emphasis on the long players because the long players would lose more if it was a percentage. So if a ball goes 10% shorter, someone who hits it further loses more. Someone who's also hits it shorter is also used to hitting mid and long irons into par fours where someone who hits it longer is not. So there's a skill rebalancing there. If distances dropped back 10%, greens in regulation numbers would drop, which would put more emphasis back on short game, which again, the players that have relied on length and greens in regulation would have to re-up their skill set around the greens. So when Brooks puts it as simple as the long players will still be long, it won't make a difference. It's more complicated than that. He would have to chip more. 
he's still good around the greens, but he's not as good around the greens as Luke Donald is. Mm. So if the game started to put emphasis back on around the greens just a little bit, Luke Donald would be slightly at an advantage when it got inside of 30 yards. So that would balance things out. Long players have always and should be rewarded. If you can hit it long and where you're looking, you should have an advantage over those who can't Absolutely. hit it as far Absolutely. where they're looking. We don't want to take it out. But the, the whole thing about distance is that it's relative. There was a time not that long ago when 280 was long yards. Yeah, but that, yeah. that was just in the 80s and 90s. That was a long hit, 280 yards. And the players who hit it 280 had that advantage. Now long is 330. You're at 300 yards, 270 metres, and you average, literally average. Well, that's and right. Has that and that changed anything about the game? And, and like you said, it's all relative. So it doesn't really matter that I hit it 300 yards now with modern equipment. What matters is that I'm playing the same courses that they were playing 15 years ago. Yeah, that, well, that's what exactly matters. right. So like, yeah. even, even though my driving distance has, imp- has increased by 10%, the golf courses are not 10% longer. And nor should so, they be. On no. a planet of finite resources, golf as a game cannot make a case that we need more space to play Absolutely. because we've got technology that allows it. The, and the, the madness the real of that problem. argument is, is obvious. That's Sorry. the actual problem. The actual problem is that you, mm. you don't have the space to continue yeah. to expand the golf courses to make the game right. the same as it was, you know, to, to have the courses keep up with the expanse in equipment. That's That's the only disconnect that matters. So... It's not really about equipment being great and all this kind of stuff. It's it's really just about the relativity between the equipment and the courses that it changes the challenge of the game from what it's always been. And the nature That's of the, the competition. Is it possible, Bryden, that we're just old, you, me, Clayton, Huggin, Shackelford, that we're just old and we liked a certain sort of golf because it's what we grew up with and that, in fact, there's a kid out there who's 15 who can't believe that you'd suggest golf should be anything but what it is now? And that for him, yes. when he gets to our age, he's going to be telling young people, oh, when Brooks and Tiger and Rory were the best players in the day, the game was better. I mean, I'm sure that will be a conversation. Uh, ideally, there's a plateau just like there was from the 50s to the 80s. For 30 years, their equipment didn't really change. Um, golf ball manufacturing got a little bit better so that more golf balls came out round. That was about the mm-hmm. the large Pros jump. used to carry a ring, didn't they? And they would get the yeah. new balls from there and they'd put them through the ring and they'd dispense with the ones that well, weren't and, quite and a, round. Well, and a, a lot of pros, including myself, uh, also float balls in salt water to make sure that they are round. Isn't Bryson um, the only one that does that? I know he does it. There are there are guys. Hogan did it as well. Know, yeah. Lots of and people you do have it. done it. I do it as well. It's very – It's. I mean – it's a testament, again, a second plug for Titleist here. It's a testament to their manufacturing because I haven't found one yet that isn't round. Wow. So, um, granted, I've only been doing it a month. But still, uh, with the old balls, it was more like two-thirds were round. Yeah. So, it would make a real difference. I had an experience playing with persimmons and balladas the other week where I was hitting a ball and thinking, that didn't feel right with that swing. ball was certainly not round. So, I grabbed a round one started hitting good shots. So. Wow. For 30 years there, equipment was fairly standardized. So you could compare someone like Jack Nicholas to Ben Hogan. Yep, yep. The comparison is irrelevant now. Um, you can barely compare guys now to Tiger in 2000. Hmm. And that's accelerating. And it's, it, 
there is a point where it will break. So there's a point where it becomes ridiculous and people just start saying, well, are we, are we playing golf anymore? Is this still golf? Um, Does it stop being entertaining? Professional golf is entertainment, ultimately. And when it becomes less entertaining and that's the danger, then it would be like making a movie that was less interesting than it could be deliberately. There's no point in doing that. So that's if, the question. If, and if that's the same the argument. move happens in the game from 20 years ago to now, where the emphasis becomes purely on basically on driving and mm. a putting contest, people will lose interest in the game because they'll stop seeing the variability in the game, which is what makes it interesting. Yeah. The one bright spot on the horizon I think that we're seeing is for there was a period there during that 80s and 90s in particular where we probably lost the interesting characters in the game in the way they swung the club and played the game. Swings became quite formulaic. Adam Scott, um, Charles Schwartz, all you know, these classic golf swings, which are fantastic and wonderful to watch. But we really saw a production line of sort of golf swings. We're seeing something move away from that now. I mean, Matthew Wolfe is the obvious standout, mm-hmm. different kind of golf swing. But we're moving – Ironically, TrackMan is freeing players up to move in different ways as long as they get back to that impact point with the right numbers. Uh, there's less emphasis on positions in the swing and more more emphasis on the impact, as I understand it, at the level that you sort of play it. So, so that might be interesting. But if it becomes less entertaining, then it's ultimately been silly to go down that, that path. And, and it's not a good sign that just because someone has a funky swing, that's what makes it interesting. True. Um you know, even though players had, quote, funky swings, people say Arnold Palmer had a funky swing. He didn't have a funky swing. He had a funky follow-through. Uh, he had a very, very functional swing. His swing was just as functional as Jack Nicholas's or Ben Hogan's or Sam Snead's. The functionality was the same because their equipment was standardized, so there was only really one way to hit the ball the way that they hit the ball. Um and there were just different ways of getting there. That's what you were seeing with those players. The difference is now is that there are lots of different ways to get there in the short term. But I think the injury rate in players is proving that it's not a long-term solution. What's your overall take on the game? What's your outlook? Promising, optimistic, bleak? I, I mean, I think that like globalization is good for our game because it means that... Uh, sorry is good for our game if players embrace it. Uh, the ability for players to do what Gary Player did is now expanded dramatically, mm-hmm. but a lot of players aren't taking that upon themselves to do that. The easier uh, it's gotten, the, le- the less the people less have players taken the opportunity to do it. To do it. Yeah. I sh- actually, I should add uh, Peter Thompson into that as well. He was also very good about travelling, especially around Asia, mm-hmm. um, about growing the game like that. My personal opinion is that's how you grow the game is by uh, in for in-person interactions uh, and in-person inspirations with kids that don't really know much about the game yet. Um, I don't think that you grow it through marketing campaigns uh, based on driving distance. Um, I don't think that feeds the right uh, environment for our game. But so, you giving a kid a golf ball that's signed at a golf tournament is a far more powerful magnet for the game than same kid seeing Matthew Wolf hit at 340 off the tee. Absolutely. What the ultimate is, is for uh, players to go to places that where golf isn't super um, apparent and go and play exhibition matches and have kids see that in real life. 
Uh, Old school. That's that's the in my opinion that's the way to grow the game um, because you inspire a kid who's eleven who gets to watch two or three great players play against each other on his home course. Then you do more with that that you can possibly do by reaching ten thousand people on Instagram with a post about Dustin Johnson's driving average last week. Yeah, obviously, both have their place, but I think you're right in terms of bang for buck and return on bang investment. Bang for buck, yeah, absolutely. Because that we, we kid all know the has story. parents and he has yeah. friends and it grows from there. But people are not too uh, – they're not really into that kind of growth anymore. They want to see where are the numbers on Instagram. Yeah. yeah then that's Again, that's broader than just golfers. We all know the impact because Jeff's talked about it of Ogilvy being able to jump his back fence and watch world-class golf on Royal Melbourne. Yeah, and yeah. he went on to win a U.S. Open. That's a that, that's their life. There's a connection things. there. There's a connection there. Yeah, but I'm still yeah. optimistic because there's always been people through the history of our game that have corrected it when it's gotten off course. So I'm still optimistic that even though at the moment it probably doesn't seem, it, it probably seems like the capitalism forces are winning. I don't believe that that will happen indefinitely. There's some important voices in the game, aren't they? Speaking for the game, and you, you're joining that chorus. I feel like I'm part of that chorus. We all feel we're on the right side. We all want to be on the right side of history if yeah, and when that moment ever comes. But uh, uh, Which is not to say I don't listen to people who have different views, but I'm yet to be convinced. Uh, I'm open to being convinced that it's the best way forward for the game, but I'm yet to be convinced. that. Um, well, and that's the thing. Like they, they, But they have their vision for what the game should be and what it mm-hmm. should achieve. And and I guess we have our vision um, for what the game is and what it should be maintained as and what it can still achieve if that is maintained. But I think, it, like like you said, like we said at the beginning, everything has a different, uh, everyone has a different approach and a different um, view on it. I think that ultimately the right thing will be done. Um and ultimately, what what happens will happen because of who made it happen. Yeah, indeed. I actually think ultimately the appeal of the sorts of things we're talking about is greater than the appeal of. I liken it a bit to I, fast I food. I agree. Yeah, fast I food's agree. fantastic. But really, you can't Sometimes. live on it. We all know that. So. That's right. It's fantastic as a treat. Yeah, that's exactly right. Indeed. A couple of things to finish up on, Bryden. We've talked about the game broadly. You've talked about this awakening, epiphany, I don't know, something that's happened in the last six months. Can you touch perhaps on if there's something obvious there that's simple to sort of maybe explain? And then what's in the future for Bryden? First, and of course, we've managed to go the whole time so far without mentioning the C word, but this whole coronavirus thing has changed everything. You're in I don't know whether you're in lockdown. You're in Florida, aren't you? So there's no, no lockdown in Florida, but certainly not, not much in the way of tournament golf. What's what's the what's the immediate future for for Brian McPherson? What's going to happen well, with your golf? And what's the immediate this thing future is the immediate future is patience. Uh, we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, we can only do the best that we can with the situation put in front of us. Uh, if that means that, well, the PJ Tour have announced that there'll be basically no Q school this year because status is going to roll over. Um, you can view that however you'd like. You can view that. Uh, you can choose to view that as I don't have an opportunity for Q school. I'm choosing it to, to view it as I have two years to Monday qualify onto the Corn Ferry Tour. <laughs> so there's two. There's lots of different ways to view this stuff. All you can do is give yourself the most opportunity uh, that you can handle or that you can afford, 
and be ready for that opportunity when it comes. That's all you can do. You cannot do anything else. So that's all I'm focused on doing. Um, my epiphany came in November last year after I finished my season, disappointingly, and knew I had to do something with my swing and reached out to someone that I've known for a while who has now really come into the spotlight, and that's Brad Hughes. Oh. Um, I started working with Hugo last November. Uh, I had spent some time with him over the years being down here in South Florida because Allenby lives here as well. Mm-hmm. So, in him and Hugo, I've done some stuff over the years, so I've spent some time with both of them um, and been pretty decent friends with Rob over the years. And... I'd spent some time with Hugo in Australia when he first started teaching uh, <clears throat> back in sort of 2012, 2013, because uh, he's a Kingswood boy, um, originally Rossdale, then Kingswood mm-hmm. and Peninsula in Kingswood. So he would spend some time there. And he completely changed my view of the golf swing. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was focused on how it looked instead of how it functioned. He taught me how it's supposed to function. Um, And I've taken it from there and deepened my understanding of how the golf swing can work, not how the golf swing does work, because there's lots of different ways that it can work together. And this is, again, touching back on the theme of finding what works best for you. There is no proper way to swing a golf club. There are fundamentals you must touch on, but you should know how every part of your swing works together. And that's the nirvana that the best players, not many of them, but the best players achieve. So, Hugo has opened my eyes to the possibilities of what the golf swing can be. Um, I'm taking it a little bit beyond just what he teaches. Again, people who know me. <laughs> Nobody will be surprised. To no one will be surprised to know that I don't, I'm not taking it at face value. But what I'm doing is reading uh, things now through a lens that Hugo has given me. So, previously, if I was to pick up something like the golfing machine, which is the atypical, crazy, technical... Yeah, the Homer Kelly. Um, the Homer yeah. Kelly uh, analogy of the golf swing, it's not a golfing method. It's a golfing uh, anatomy book. It's how every part of the swing works together. I wouldn't have had any idea what to do. Hugo's given me a lens that I can read that through now. And it's helping me just incredible amounts. I'm able to understand how my swing works, how to hit the ball, how the physics of the golf swing work. Uh, And again, touch wood, it's the understanding that I've been searching for. And the lockdown's been good because I've I've been able to work on dry drills and change how my body moves and the transformation in my swing from last November to now is just uh, enormous. Because whichever way you choose, the ultimate goal is to develop a physical action that when butterflies in the stomach, dry mouth, can't breathe, real pressure, real nerves, repeats the way it does when you stand on the range on a Thursday afternoon after the round or on a Wednesday just hitting balls to warm up that, that you can repeat the same action. That's the goal, isn't it? There's a million different ways to get there. But that's I would goal. actually disagree with that. Oh really? I would I would say that the goal is to develop a swing that functions at its best when it's under pressure. Oh, okay. So 
I would not think that you would ever want to be able to hit a shot into the last hole at the US Open the way that you hit it on the range because those are totally different situations. And one of them has the potential to be great and one of them doesn't. So you should be trying to tailor your swing, your equipment to that situation that is high pressure, not to the situation that is no pressure. Mm. So my goal is to understand how my swing works so that it can only function at its best when it has the most pressure on it. Will you change the way you practice because of that? Do you then need to play money games in practice as opposed to hitting 50 balls on the range to make your swing work? That's so the range simple. the range stuff definitely has a, uh, a part, but you're right. I, I've felt myself gravitating towards more pressure-style golf, mm-hmm. but without getting too detailed into it, I have my equipment set up now that it only works when I make it work. So if I make a relaxed swing like I might on the range, my equipment doesn't work. Wow, okay. So my stuff is heavy and it's flat. My blades are at six degrees flat. Oh, you my, really have gone full, Hugo, haven't you? Yeah, my uh, <laughs> my stuff is it's, it's along the same lines as Hogan. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's he right. had his stuff crazy heavy, crazy flat, so that he knew he had to really work it to get it to go online. Um, because that way, in a pressure situation, you can't overcook it. So it's similar to all the downforce mechanisms on an F1 car, not designed to go around a corner at 60 kilometers an hour. It's designed to go around a corner. The faster that you go, the, the more it sticks it. to the ground. Wow. So that's how my equipment's set up now, and that gives me feedback every time I play. So I don't stress when I'm playing recreationally and I'm hitting the ball terribly because I have this constant feedback for, well, this equipment only works when I'm really stressing oh. the shaft and moving fast what did and the releasing people, it properly. What did the people who built your clubs for you when you went to them and said, this is what I want, <laughs> what did they say? That no one had ever asked for that before. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly no one who's trying to make a living out of the game and has already proved, yeah. proved quite proficient at the game. That's a quite dangerous thing to do in some ways, again. So, so this is something, again, that I, I very well maybe proved wrong on one day. Uh, people say that you make uh, 80% of your money from 20% of your events. Mm-hmm. I would think you would want equipment that's going to work for you the best when you're playing your best so you can rely on it. So if you're standing there in the 18th fairway, stressed, sweating, shaking, adrenaline just pumping through you. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you want equipment that's going to work for you then? Not when you're on the range? Sure. Because Me personally, I just want someone else playing because I'm not that <laughs> guy. I'm not the pressure guy, so don't give me the ball. <laughs> and, and this is something, again, in my personal opinion, the folly of uh, sports psychology is trying to avoid pressure and avoid nerves. You can't do that. You'll always have that. You'll always be nervous. You'll always have adrenaline. You'll always have an extra five mile per hour club head speed when you're under pressure. So why wouldn't you want equipment that's going to fit that situation so that then when you're not in that situation, because that's obviously your peak state, mm-hmm. that's when you're at, you're at your absolute best. That's no, one's at their, no one's at their absolute best when they've had three beers and swinging it smooth on the range, right? When you're clear-minded, when you're focused, when you're adrenaline-filled, that's when you're at your peak state. So if you're always trying to achieve that as often as possible, why wouldn't you have equipment, i.e. feedback, as a yardstick to tell you when you're there or when you're not? Yeah. So I know now when I'm playing, if I hit a good shot, it was a good swing. 
and I know that what my equipment's going to do, it's, it doesn't go left. It is um, predictable and it is my yardstick for my swing. And it might be right, but it feels right. Okay. So I really think that this may be a good way for me as someone who not really that satisfied with mediocrity to operate with this. There's a chance that maybe one day I might go to a more cavity back iron, Mm -hmm. maybe slightly less flat. But if it becomes apparent that I'm actually giving away shots for no reason, if I can still create that same uh, environment under pressure that I know that I can't overload my equipment. Um, You know, I just got uh, from these guys in, in LA, these new shafts, wood shafts that tip out at about 11 on the rifle scale. Um, I can't overload them. Uh, it's so hard to make the ball turn over because I have to work to make it to go straight with my driver and three wood. That is great because I know that I swing it seven or eight miles per hour faster under, under pressure. So I want stuff that's going to fit that. Um, it's kind of the way that I've chosen to approach improving mm-hmm. my swing with Hugo because I know that if I can make this stuff work, I'm a good ball striker. So that's really simple in my mind. So it's a really great, use the term yardstick. It's a great yardstick for me and my swing because if your equipment is fit to what you were doing when you were on the range at the fitting studio, how do you know what your swing's doing? But if if your equipment is set up to function in a high-stress environment under pressure in competitive golf, that's that's what you want to do, right? That's your goal is to do that. So, if you have that always as a reminder in your bag, isn't that a good thing? We're going to find out, out, aren't we? We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's somebody out there experimenting with it and there's somebody who did the shades of the Molinari approach in that, isn't there? Isn't that what he did with Dave Allred? The pressure putting games before he won the Open. It was the the real pressure putting games and all that sort of stuff. So The idea that you should leave your practice frustrated because it was difficult is uh, like character and and pressure building. Yeah, there's definitely a functionality in that for sure. Yeah, concept is interesting. Well, Bryden, I've wanted to have you on this show right since we launched it because you think outside the box. Anybody who wasn't convinced that you think outside the box, just listen to that last 10 minutes. I can't think there's another golf pro in the world who is tackling what you have done. Fantastic to catch up with you. All the best with all of that. When golf does restart, you said you've got Monday qualifying for the KFT. Do we know if China's going to restart? Are you planning to go back there? You've had a lot of success there. We didn't get to talk about it. I was going to ask you about that. But just winning is important. It doesn't matter where you do it. Winning is an important ingredient and thing to have done as a pro golfer so that it's you know you can do it. So what's that immediate future hold? Uh, if the China Tour, the China Tour, not PGA Tour China, if they resume with a European Tour card at the end of the carrot for this year, I'll do everything in my power to get over there and do it. Um, my prediction is that maybe they'll do a wraparound season like seems like what most things are doing. So if I can get over there safely, I have a fiance, so coming home to her is, is important to make mm-hmm. sure that I'm safe and healthy and yeah. not going to put her at risk. So uh, there's a lot of factors to, to consider. But again, people who know me, I will be pushing the boundaries, <laughs> trying to, to sort of do whatever I can, wherever I can, uh, to try and do the best I can. Fantastic. It's been a joy to watch your career to this point, Bryden, and it's going to continue to be a joy to watch it develop from here on in. It's been fantastic. Get a bit of an insight today. Thanks for taking some time, mate. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Rod. 
Well, that's it for episode 19. As always, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As he mentioned there, Bryden is unclear about his immediate golf future, but when the game does return to something approaching normal, I hope that he has a few more fans than he did when this whole virus blew up. Now, we're lurching from one golf bro to the next at the moment on The Thing About Golf, and that trend continues in a fortnight when it'll be a huge pleasure to catch up with one of only four Australians ever to don the green and gold for golf at the Olympics. Scott Hend is our guest next time on The Thing About Golf. Golf.